0: Welcome to Pod Aloha, dedicated to preserving the heritage of surfing and the spirit of Aloha. I'm Paul Strau, and I'm going to take you inside the stories of surfing's biggest influencers.
1: Hey, this is Kiernan, and thanks for tuning in. Today, we welcome back two very special guests, Randy Rarick and Jerry Lopez, for another visit with Paul. The transformations in the culture and innovations in wave riding that these three legends lived through are extraordinary. Today's talk story is a true history lesson from three surfers who lived and shaped that history. Enjoy. Hello, Paul.
0: Hello to you, Kiernan, again. I know. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you today. And look who's just stopped by. Jerry who Lopez. Jerry oh. Lopez, an old friend of mine from Ala Moana days, Oahu, and uh, a very special guy in my life.
1: And you know who broke into the studio? Who's You don't that? even know, Randy Rarick is here. Randy's here by. too? He
0: did. How great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I thought while well, we've got you guys in one place, for guys my age, everybody thinks about Hawaii is the epicenter of surfing still, but they particularly think about the North Shore. But there was a time when it was Ala Moana was the epicenter of surfing and you guys all spent your lives there and in, in the waves and the parking lots. And I thought you guys could tell us some great stories for those of us who weren't around.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I grew up in Waikiki Beach and we'd always look to the right and you can't really see be, beyond maybe populars and number threes. And so we often wondered what was beyond that point there and uh, finally got to taste those waves down there when I was young, about 15. And oh my gosh, it's a whole nother world, especially the, the waves, very, very special to me. And the one that really brought it to the world is Jerry Lopez because he wrote it better than anybody else did. And it's great to have him here with us. And also, you know, having Randy here too. Randy is the one responsible for leading the charge in competitive surfing and has took it to the highest level. So it's going to be a treat to talk with him as well.
1: Welcome guys. Well,
2: aloha to Karen, Paul, it's great to be here and that's fun to be with Jerry, my uh, former neighbor and compatriot from long ago. Long, long ago. I was 12 years old.
3: You must have only been 11, Yep. We went over to Randy's house, which you know was right in front of a surf spot we used to call Rericks, but he said it's called Toes. He should have stuck with our name because he'd have a surf spot named after him now. <laughs> but he was making a surfboard, and we were just flabbergasted. that How can you make a surfboard? And he's looking at us like we're idiots, which we were, well, I'm making it. And uh, that was, you know, early Randy when he was doing stuff that nobody else was doing. Nobody our age anyway.
1: Jerry, (laughs) is it true that when you paddled out at Rarix, which, uh, or Toes, there's a a legend that goes that Randy said, you can surf here, but you can only go left. Is that true?
3: That is true.
2: (laughs) 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 Well, well, for, for the listeners out there, we grew up, on the southeast shore of Oahu, which is kind of around the backside of Diamond Head, out uh, towards Hanama Bay about halfway. And um, there's different breaks all along the reef there. And back in the 60s, nobody surfed out there because there was, wasn't very crowded. Well, we started surfing Aina and there was a handful of guys there. And the next valley over was New Valley, which is where Jerry and I lived. And we didn't think you could surf out there originally. Because it was at low tide, it's really shallow, and the reefs pop up. So we always thought it was too shallow to surf. So we used to carry these 35, 40 pound longboards we had down to in Ina Haina. Then one day, I was looking out there because we lived right on the beach, and right in front of my house, and the tide was high enough, and I was actually see this peak peeling off. And I went, you know, I think we could maybe surf out there. And we uh, paddled out, and sure enough, got over the reef, and there was actually a peak, and we began to ride it. And so. I lived right on the beach, and and as Jerry said, a lot of guys wanted to call it Rarick's house because it was out in front of my house, but Jerry lived back in the valley a block or two back, and uh, he and his brother Victor would come down, and he was smaller and skinnier than me. I was bigger, that's why everybody thought I was older than him, and uh, (laughs) he would come out, and there's a peak there, and it's a short, hollow right, and kind of longer, slower, but a lot longer left, and I'd say, you know, Jerry, you're going to have to go left. You can't go on the right. <laughs> so I always attribute Jerry's prowess in,
1: in <clears throat> Alamon and then Pipeline
2: because he learned to serve the lefts at Toes.
1: <laughs> and Paul, you were telling me about how Toes got its name.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it, they, it was, they, there's a number of names for those places out there. One of the places just towards Ainaheina from, from Toes was a place called Secrets. And I remember being out at Toes. And some guy paddles over, a local guy, and he paddles over, and we all asked him, Hey, where'd you come from? He says, I came from Secrets. Hold, oh, crowded today. <laughs> it was like an oxymoron, you know? <laughs> Why is it named Secrets if everybody's there, you know? <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, it's funny that there was a guy um, who had come over from California and, and lived in Ainaheina, uh, and he started surfing out at Toes. And at that stage, we didn't really have a name for it. As Jerry said, a lot of guys called it Rericks because it was in front of my house. We'd call it Coral Heads because the Coral Heads would pop up, but we didn't really have a proper name yet. And this guy was a pretty good goofy footer, and he got one of those long lefts, and he ran up to the nose, and he hung five, which back in the early 60s was, they had toes on the nose from Surfer Magazine. And he ran up, and I saw him get five, and I went, wow, you got toes. You got toes, and we went, toes we'll call it toes (laughs) and uh it it stuck and after that here it is 50 years later it's still called toes so that's how the name toes came about was
1: the guy ran up and got toes on the nose so can you guys talk about for our listeners it's kind of hard to imagine for for guys my age that at some point you were paddling out trying to get your place in the lineup and you know establish yourself and paul you, you talked about this a little bit about How important it was to respect the people who, who were established in the lineup. Could you guys talk about that process for you and share any stories on that?
0: Well, I'll lead off because we all have our own stories and we've all seen horror stories too happen right in front of our eyes. But you know, there's a common courtesy when you're surfing, and you know it still exists today. But you got to remember, as far as I'm concerned, it's so uh, such a sensory experience, and once you've tasted it, you know you don't want to give it up. You want to get as much of it as you can, which means you want to catch as many waves as you can. And so learning to share waves is a real big issue, you know, especially when you're younger, because you really only care about yourself uh, at that point. But it's kind of the law of the land. If you don't, you see people get into confrontations in the water, and it's really ugly. And so, you know, I think we all went through that same situation of having a learn how to share you know with each other and it's a to me that's the biggest learning lesson that I've had to learn.
3: Well you know I think when we were just starting out anyway the hierarchy I guess you could call it was pretty well established because we were young beginners and you know we were looking at the better surfers and they got the best waves by virtue of well, several factors. They knew where to sit. They knew which were the best waves. They were paying better attention than anyone else. They were more aware. And everyone else looked up to them too. So they wanted those good guys to get the best waves so you could watch and maybe learn something You know, by watching them ride across that wave. And then from there down, it started to, you know, maybe fragment a little. And um, it just seemed like it was never that busy that, you know, at some point your turn wouldn't come up. I mean, everybody had a chance at some point. Some guys just had more chances than others. And there really wasn't any kind of territorialism or localism until surfing had grown into... A much bigger sport than when we started at it and you know surf spots started getting crowded and suddenly it wasn't the best surfer getting the best waves or the most waves Um, it was the guy that was the most aggressive that wanted to take those waves and even if he wasn't the best surfer he was gonna get them you know because he would fight you for him and that seemed to to change how um, surfing went forward from that point on,
2: and- I think that's a real valid point. In the late '50s, early '60s, um, it wasn't that crowded. There, really, there was a lot of surf spots, like for instance, Toes was a good example, where nobody surfed out there except unless you lived out there. And the generation before us, Paul, for instance, is about a half a generation ahead of us. We had really respect for our elders because the guys that came before us were the ones that we learned from. And you listened to them, you watched them, as Jerry said. You actually wanted to see those guys get the good waves because then you could watch them and say, Okay, I'm going to see what he's doing so I can learn from that. And it was really important to respect that. So, respect in the early days. And then, as Jerry said, what happened is in the early 60s surfing boom took off and all of a sudden there was this big proliferation of more and more surfers getting involved and so subsequently a lot of the surf spots got more crowded and then as Jerry pointed out the more aggressive surfers began to take over and it's interesting because in on the south shore of Oahu there's little every break it had its own little group of guys and as surfing got more popular more and more guys would surf those different breaks and for instance, my mom was an, a florist at the old Hilton Hawaiian village, which back then was Kaiser had built it. Mm-hmm. And so right out in front, they made it, they blasted a channel to let the, the tour boats to come in, and that became known as Kaisers. And so the guys that surfed Kaisers became the regulars there. And then down the way, Ala Moana uh, tended to have goofy footer guys, because it was a left, and so there was more goofy footers there and coming back towards Waikiki number threes was more regular footers because it was a right. So each spot began to develop their regulars, but then as it got more popular, it definitely got more congested, more crowded, more aggro, and then it, and I think that was the beginning of localism, not only here in Hawaii, but everywhere obviously, began to develop because that was how you protected your wave at your spot with your crew. So um, it's just inevitable that with the growth of surfing that was gonna happen.
0: Yeah, you know, the evolution took place, <laughs> but but you know along the way there were guys that really stood out that you know as far as I was concerned, I looked up to because of their prowess and their ability to, to use the surfboard to their advantage and and I loved to see guys who were graceful, and it, you know I can't help but think about a couple of guys that really attracted my attention in Waikiki, uh, two of them come to mind and they're, Squirrelly Carvalho who was mm-hmm. a beach boy and Dingo, and. They're both, um, Dingo was really dark uh, and he had a black surfboard. I asked him once, I said, why do you, the wax must be melt right off your board, so how do you stay on your board? And he says, well, I love black, you know? And he wore black trunks and everything and his skin was really dark. But he had a way of standing on the board really proudly and he was really adept too. I found out later that he was a, a very advanced martial artist, so it kind of fit the profile, you know, of how we surf. Anyway, there was there were these guys in Waikiki that stood out from the rest of the people, and really kind of I gravitated towards what they were doing and paid particular attention on how they would redistribute their weight and and be able to you know move the board in certain you know different ways that than all the other surfers. And so I think we all have our heroes that we looked up to. I think that's one neat thing about surfing is that you have role models that for whatever reason appeals to you, you become attached to somebody and then you learn about who they are and everything. And I guess it goes in any sport, you know, but surfing was very special for me in that respect.
3: Yeah. I started out, um, pretty early on at Ala Moana. Um, you know, Randy and I had our local spot where we live, but, Going to Ala Moana was always a special treat because you could see mm-hmm. the best surfers. You know, you would come out there on occasion, Freddie would come out there. But the guys that were there all the time that really um, made an impression on me and always stood out in my mind were Conrad Kana yeah. and Sammy Lee. Sammy Lee and yeah. when the waves were big, when it was pull sets and you know, the it was tubing out there, those guys were getting tube rides back then. And yeah. And I remember, you know, always um, just being in such awe of that. And I remember, you know, as I got a little older, one day a really good day, and Conrad came out, you know, and he was he was already a teamster uh, working for Five O, driving truck or something, you know. <laughs> but the surf was good, so he was out there, and you know, he was always a little standoffish, you know, a little bit. He was just kind of kept to himself, and. I remember sitting next to him at one point, you know, and the, the waves had been really good and he'd got some really, you know, great waves and, and <laughs> I thought I had too, you know, and, and he kind of looked over at me, you know, and I went, wow, wow, it's really good out here. <laughs> I mean, this is like one of the best days I've ever seen. I was like motor mouthing, you know, and, and Conrad kind of looked over at me and goes, nice drops. And that was all he said, you know. And I, I went, yeah, nice jobs. And you know, later on we met up and and we're talking about the old days. And he goes, "Yeah, I remember you guys. I used to call you guys the Majiros, you know, because you're always buzzing around, you know. And, you know, he would be sitting there on heat and he rode this awful board. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a pop out, you know, with the fin like." right on the very end of the board up yep. and it didn't matter what he rode so he was he was <clears> so <throat> light footed and, and nimble and solid on the board that you know the <clears throat>
0: wave would break on his head and he'd power right through it you know being all be one, Alamo this memory comes to mind um, Peter Cole you know was my algebra and, and uh, geometry teacher <laughs> <laughs> and so we're in the you know in the parking lot and haven't come in already and talking story and so here comes peter after school pulls in i see him get out and look you know stands up above all the other car tops and then he disappears and i don't see him again we're talking and everything i said wow what's he doing i mean it's good how come he's not going out so i walk over and i see him on all fours you know down looking at the ground and i said hi mr cole uh did you lose something he says yeah, I lost my contact, you know, and uh, trying to find it. And I said, You need help? Well, I, yeah, maybe I could. I said, Okay, hang on. So I run over, call the guys, about four guys come over. And so I tell us what we can do to help. So he says, Okay, if you form a semicircle around my car door, the driver's door, and I'm going to go through a simulation of exactly what happened when I lost the first one. So I want you guys to keep your eyes open. So find out, watch where mine lands. And I figure theory of probability, it's probably within 18 <laughs> inches to 24 inches from where the first one fell, okay? And so they, my friends are all Hawaii guys, you know, they go, huh, okay, you know? So <laughs> oh, we'll get out huh? our knees from well, the semicircle. He says, okay, hang on, I gotta wait for the wind to come up like it was. Okay, okay, here it is. Okay, you see it? And I remember Kalani DeLovio's his head was right in front of Peter's, and he looks up with his head and he goes, see what? (laughs) (laughs) And Peter goes, never mind. (laughs) So he lost two, you know. (laughs) Takes his board off and paddles on. That's a story I'll never forget because it's so priceless. I know you you both have stories like that too.
2: Uh, Well, you know, it's funny how you you mentioned about uh, Conrad and, his boards, you were talking about Dingo was uh, his boards were black as well. Yeah. And actually, Sparky Shufelt, who was a really good shaper in Hawaii, did most of Conrad's boards. And Conrad was, but he, because because I was so into boards early on, I would always look at everybody's board before I would look at them usually mm-hmm. to see what they were riding, what kind of board it was, and. And Sparky shaped these really unique boards for Conrad. And as Jerry pointed out, Conrad always had the fin stuck on the very tail block, actually hanging out over the end. And the whole idea, of his theory was that when it got hollow at Alamoana, that fin would hold him in and he would never spin out. And pretty much it worked. Yeah, no kidding. I mean it made it work for probably, him. Yeah, I was gonna oh. say it worked it made the boards really <laughs> stiff, but at least it worked for him. And he had these black surfboards and it was amazing. And <laughs> And there wasn't too many shapers in Hawaii that were regarded as that good a shaper, but Sparky was one Sparky's of them. Sparky yeah. he was. Yeah. And he, uh, he actually is credited with the, the guy who created the concave nose. I people, know, that's right. A lot right. of people didn't realize that. We had, um, I don't know if you remember, Jerry, uh, uh, by Howe Bush on Eva Beachside, yeah. they had a the Hawaiian Surfing Association had a nose-riding contest, because that's when nose-riding was kind of popular in the mid-60s there, and so Sparky designed this board and put a concave in it, and Reno actually rode it. And Reno weighed probably about 85 pounds at that stage. He was so little. So he could get up on the nose and perch himself on the nose where everybody else that was heavier would slow down or sink it. And uh, Reno won that contest. I
3: remember, yeah.
2: And that was the first board with the concave nose on it. And then Phil Edwards actually heard about it and picked it up and then made the concave nose rider for Hobie after that so a lot of I mean, people think phil created it, but he actually picked it up after uh sparky, sparky yeah. yeah
0: wow so. you know you brought you mentioned the hawaii surfing association and i remember you know i actually served as a president of the hawaii surfing association and at that time you know we're encouraging uh because it was made up of uh clubs and so encouraging people to get together and i'll never forget we had an association meeting uh, and before the meeting invited all of those club members to invite their friends so that they could also either come into their clubs or form a new club. And we're trying to create a you know greater organization, number-wise, and then to help support the contest circuit that we were creating. Just make it, just you have to be in a club and then you come in, your club joins, and then you can participate by paying an entry fee so we had these meetings and it's it's important for you guys to understand robert's rules of order you know i never forget this guy raising his head local guy says hey who's this guy
2: robert mm. <laughs> <laughs> i said no you gotta take a look at the book and read it you know? but it was it was really special I, I think that was really the naive early days in the mid early 60s there where, as i said every surf spot had it had its kind of crew yeah. and that crew became the basis for those surf clubs so You'd have the Diamond Head Surf Club and you have the Evan Beach mm-hmm. Surf Club and you have the uh, South Coast Surf Club and, and Freedom Riders. Freedom Riders. Kui Lee Surf Club. <laughs> yeah. Kool-Aid that Kool-Aid that Kool-Aid. came a little bit later. later. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a, derived from the Freedom Riders. And, uh, right. But it was interesting because those clubs brought the group of guys that surfed their usually local break together and created. And so there would be a lot of camaraderie, but at the same time, there would be a ton of rivalry. And we used to have club contests at usually small surf because we were on mm-hmm. big boards. And like Chun's Reef, you get 15 clubs out there represented in two, three-foot day at Chun's. And there was a lot of, like I said, rivalry between, especially the town clubs from one area to another, trying to beat you know, have bragging rights of beating the other guys. Yeah. Big learning curve. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, and if you weren't a member of the club and you were in the contest, you know, they'd have your name and your club but if you weren't it said unaffiliated
2: right and that was like <laughs> know, well, if you were unaffiliated renegade <laughs> well, that, was like, that was a kiss of death that nobody wanted you <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh those are priceless days though yeah God. but you know it seemed
3: like i mean we were all basically town guys and there wasn't you know back then we called it the country um now the North Shore you know there wasn't really anything out there um, I know that's right Fred Van Dyke used to drive in there with his gas mask on because he lived out there and yep. I think Peter Peter Cole ended up eventually living out there pretty there. early too that's right um, but they were like you know Jose Angel mm-hmm. um, they were like the pioneers yes, to exactly. live out there actually and town was really the place where all the surf was, where all the surfers were, where all the surf spots were. And I remember, you know, even after going to the country a lot, thinking, wow, oh, there's way more surf spots in town than there are out here. And
2: yeah, it was because of the longboards didn't really work that well in the country except small days. Right. Makaha was the place of choice, obviously, right. for bigger surf and the Makaha International was the contest that was kind of the de facto world championships back in those days and so if you were a townie and you serve town and if you're going to go in the winter uh, you pretty much went to Makaha. Mm-hmm. We didn't go that much early on at least I'd say maybe by the mid 60s a lot more because the boards got better but I remember early 60s one we were young and two the boards were pretty clunky and so they really didn't work that good. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually, what did you say, Randy? That you know, to have it wasn't called
0: a quiver, but you had to have boards that worked in different size surf, and so you basically had a small weight board, a, a medium weight board, and then. A, a board for designed for bigger waves. And well,
3: that was good surfers like you.
2: Yeah. You know, well, you guys like us, yeah. we
0: had one board
3: and
2: that was it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was like, that was. But a it lot made of, a
0: difference, though, you know. know if that was a lot of money to have board. three
2: boards, Bob. I, mean, I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but it was, I think, once again, there was a, a shift, real big shift from the early 60s to the mid 60s because surfing took off. And when surfing took off there was this explosion of, of people that wanted to get it and surfboards got better and that was a real big difference because if you look at the early surf movie footage mm-hmm. the guys were cooking out on their boards they were terrible the boards <laughs> weren't designed for the north shore yeah. right. and it wasn't until really the mid 60s and i'd say what kind of kicked that into gear was when the the first duke contest happened mm-hmm. which was late 65 and all of a sudden, it put the emphasis shifted from Makaha to the North Shore in the mid 60s. But prior to that, it was more about if you're going to ride big surf, you went to Macaha and you got a board, like I said, that worked in bigger ways. Guys were surfing, beginning to surf the North Shore in the early 60s, but it didn't really till mid 60s become exposed. Mm-hmm. I think the magazines and the movies prior to that, it was maybe a big day. At, I mean, Pipeline didn't even get rid until like 62, 63, I
3: think. Yeah, 61 was when. Um... Phil wrote it, but 6263 was the Cut real winner. Up. Exactly. Yeah.
2: So that that's what I'm saying. So it didn't really, the early on, and as Jerry pointed out, we didn't think about going to the country. It was like, oh, it's too big out there. We're not going to go yeah. do that. <laughs> but you both have had so much
0: experience in shape with shaping, you know, and board design. And so you guys are r- right at the top of the ladder in terms of, skills you know and what
2: works and what doesn't work
0: and that's an evolution
2: in and of itself too sure I, I think uh, the last podcast you did with Jerry he was talking about influence of George Downing um, Mike Hinson even yes guys that were surfer shapers really had an advantage over guys that didn't shape their boards because in the early days um, like I said the boards are really crummy and they're basically a lot of guys didn't even know what they were doing when they were making boards, and so the shapers that surfed good could go ride a board, come in, make an adjustment to it, mm-hmm. and then especially when short boards came in at the late 60s, early 70s, huge difference. I mean, if you look at all the guys that were really good, most of them were surfer shapers, and they had the most influence the quickest. And Jerry, of course, um, at Pipeline when he adopted the down rail, made all the difference in the world there. And uh, like I said, George, I think early on had the expertise that he applied to other people that if anybody listened to him, they they figured out how to make a board work better. I was lucky enough in 67 when McTavish came over with his Mm V-bottom and George shaped me a V-bottom, the very first V-bottom he did after he saw McTavish. It was in the 1967 um, Duke contest, and basically McTavish spun out on the board, but everybody could see there was something to that design. And so here was a mm-hmm. shaper, surfer, McTavish, taking his own design, which was basically an Australian design, trying to adapt it to the Hawaiian designs. And then the story where Jerry and Reno went over to Maui and, and Brewer. That was that year? Yeah, well, it was right after that. It was literally a few weeks later. But at the same time, George shaped me a V-bottom board, Mm -hmm. and he said, well, I'm gonna apply my theory to using this V-bottom thing. And it was, for a couple months, that was like the best board I ever had, and then it became obsolete within like two months. I mean, that's how fast things were changing in 67. From 67, from that moment when McTavish showed up with the V-bottom of the Duke, to Maui with Reno and Jerry, and then interacting with McTavish, and Brewer, by the time the beginning of 1968, boards had changed dramatically in about a four month period. Yep. I mean, they went down in size, they went down in volume, and Brewer's adaptation of the V bottom into his, his minigun changed yeah. completely. Then, the next, I think, the next major change that came along was when Henson introduced the down rail, which he called a breakaway rail at the time. But the mainland ones weren't quite as good as the ones that were adapted for Hawaii, and, and I think Jerry can speak to this, where you know, that adaptation allowed you to get deeper in pipelines, without mm-hmm. a doubt. I mean, we changed from displacement holes, which were rounded noses, it used to slide out, and when you get a hollow wave in the tube, it would slide out, to, to planing bottoms, and all right. of a sudden you got an edge that you could hold in. So, And that's
3: it. That's the you know basic theory of the difference between a planing hull and a displacement hull is that a displacement hull doesn't take much effort to make it go. That's why sailboats have used displacement hulls. But when you have power, you want a planing hull because you're able to use that power to get up on a plane. And as Randy pointed out, the problem um, with trying to ride the tube on a displacement hull was You got up on a plane too quick and they would just spin out or you know track or they just wouldn't work back there and we were just getting killed trying to ride the tube on displacement bow type Mm -hmm. surfboard designs and it really wasn't until henson showed us that down rail which removed that displacement bow Mm -hmm. design and made it more of a planing um, bow um that the surfboards started to, to work, to ride in the tube at places like the pipeline or, um, you know, Alamoana was a different type of wave. It was a short tube right. and you could set it up by stalling, which is what Conrad and Sammy mm-hmm. used to do. They just, they'd take off and they do that tail stall. And then they just, you know, Conrad would put that cannonball in his <laughs> belly down and, uh. <laughs> shoot right through that no. tube and pop out the other end yeah. pretty much every time, you know, and it, it was really a disappearing act that was amazing because nobody else was doing it at the time mm-hmm. and he was getting away with it on a board that I don't think anybody else could do that on and that's why
0: nobody else was. Yeah, very conventional looking board. Yeah, the
3: time. but yeah. you know, he had timing and he had skill and he was Amazingly nimble for his, uh, his shape. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, Alamoana was the only town wave that was really hollow. All the other waves are pretty soft. Of course, Waikiki, canoes, Queens, great for longboarding, rolly wave. Threes is a great wave, but rarely gets hollow. Yeah. It's a nice peeling wave, but it doesn't get very hollow. And so Alamoana, and Alamoana is a man-made wave because of the channel. They widen the channel and created a deep water channel that hit a really shallow reef. 1953, shallory. and because of that, because there originally was a stream that led out there, that's which right. was the original channel. Yep. But then it was enhanced and became basically a man-made wave. That, yeah. That's reason it got more hollow. And normally, most of the waves in town aren't that hollow. So, as Jerry pointed out, it's interesting that certain surfers were able to adapt to that wave, and each generation would have a different guy. So. Mm-hmm. Conrad, Sammy gave way then to Jerry, and mm-hmm. uh, then Jerry gave way to, like, Michael Ho and, and those guys. Right. and uh, So every generation, there's somebody that adapts to it and still going on to this day.
0: Yeah, it sure is. Gosh. What would you consider to be, you know, you, Randy, your favorite period in your surfing, personal
2: surfing history? Well, I think it, it, it's all... Every generation, there's something neat about it. For me, the innocence of when you're young, and and the well, was so nice back in the early, late '50s, early '60s. It was un, the uncrowdedness of it. And mm-hmm. I kind of talked about that earlier, where, where where we lived out in New Valley on Southeast Oahu was Jerry lived in the valley. I later came. Mark Fu lived in, in mm-hmm. New Valley. Mark Cunningham, the great body surfer, came. Dennis from New, Pang. Dennis Pang. Dennis, I remember shaping Dennis. His first custom made board. And th- this is, you know, probably I was about, mm, by that stage, I was probably about 14 or 15. So I started to learn how to make boards pretty decently, not like the first one that <laughs> so we hacked out. And, uh, and Dennis, I made this board and it, I was learning how to use the planer and I, i was trying to get it to even it up and the board kept getting thinner and thinner and thank goodness dennis was a little chinese guy <laughs> so even though was the board came, it came out really good and the board actually worked <laughs> amazingly good because of it and uh, we were talking about surf clubs i actually freedom riders had a, a perio band on their t-shirt as their their look and i actually took a t-shirt and cut the perio band out of the t-shirt and put it on dennis's board and made a a Perio competition band on that board, and he was so proud of that. And uh, it was really kind of cool to, you know, long before we realized you silk screen a, a, a sticker. Sure, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, cutting up a T-shirt to make a design was kind of fun. But I think those early days were great because it wasn't crowded. Yeah. I think the camaraderie applied really well. But at the same time, surfing boom when the Beach Boys started happening mm-hmm. and surf music and. The, the kind of golden age of the uh, early to mid-60s, really. And for me, as a guy who was into surfboards, I loved it because all these different surfboards were coming out. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I did a night shift up at the Greg Knoll shop, which is where George Downing yeah. was shaped out of. And George actually taught me how to shape. He showed me how to band rails, how to do templates. And a funny little story, he showed me how to foil a fin. And up to that stage, nobody thought about foils on fins. Everything was just flat slab, yeah. d fins. Uh, you know, it was just a rudder on the basic thing on your tail. You didn't think anything about hydrodynamics. Mm-hmm. George knew about hydrodynamics, and he says, "Randy, and he says you have to foil." it. well, explain to me what foiling is. I said, "Well," he says, "Well, you start from the front and taper it to the back, and the same thing you start from the bottom and taper it to the tip." And I said, "Okay." Well, he says, "I'll show you," and he showed me, and then. He gave me the sander with a soft pad on it. And at first, wait, you know, whack! I caught it on the thing, and whoosh, the, the soft pad goes flying off against the wall. I go, oh no! You know, there's that's a two ninety five soft pad. I just screwed up there, and it was. Uh, he was very patient. You know, I says, no, no, I just. He says, take your time. And he says, and he actually took a pencil and he drew lines on the fin, and he says, just follow this line. He says, and then you'll naturally learn how to do it better. And I did, and. And same thing with shaping. He showed me how to band rails. He says he would take a pencil line and draw a line along the rail, mm-hmm. and, and so he taught me the basics of shaping, which then I got into shaping a lot more after that. And it was good because it was still longboard. Right. And then I get I transitioned really well from longboard to shortboard. And I think Jerry could speak to this as well. Guys from. The generation just before yours, Paul, which were like five years older than you, Mm -hmm. were were ten years older than us, and so they were the longboard guys. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them didn't make that transition. Mm -hmm. They really didn't. Guys like Freddie, he he didn't really make the transition very well. Butch, I don't think made the transition very well. Guys that were a little bit older kind of got stuck when the board started going really short. And I think Jerry was lucky because he was with Reno were lightweight and so the small board still floated and where the big guys right. they struggled to paddle those things and yeah. it was it was tough so
0: I used to hang around with Ben Ipa though he made you know 510 but the you gotta realize
2: board I had but it was like about nearly four inches thick yeah. you know? well Ben is a late comer you know Ben didn't start <clears throat> surfing till till the mid 60s yeah he didn't start as a boy he was already a grown man when Ben he got into the thing really late and he embraced it really, and that's why it became a really good shirt, because once again, a surfer shaper. And mm-hmm. this is something that I really like to point out to people, that guys that shaped their own boards tended to be really good surfers as well. Of course, mm-hmm. you needed talent too. Sure. And Ben really jumped on the bandwagon, because he didn't even learn to shape till 1966. Mm-hmm. And he learned, and he got into it, made some long boards, and then transitioned and so he was right there as the transition happened and he embraced it really well so yes, he did. I think you know you're asking me what airs I liked. that was the next thing I was going to segue to was that when we went from long boards to sh- it was kind of like guys from your era that went from wood boards to, to, to foam. foam boards Yeah. well all of a sudden we went from big heavy you know foam tankers to now these short boards and within it started in 67 and by Sixty-nine, which is two years later, it had, it had gone from 10-foot boards to 7-foot boards. Mm-hmm. And then we actually we even went shorter. When we went to the World Contest together in uh, 1970, you know, if you remember, the yeah. Australians went down into like Nat Young, those guys were riding like 5, 6, five, yeah. 10s. They, they went too short. That's why they lost. That's right. Their boards were too short. But that was what was so exciting is they took it to the extreme. And then when Rolf Arnest won the world, they realized, wow, he won because he had a board he could catch the waves and get some draw out of. Yeah. And here was Nat, you know, on this little stubby thing that was trying to imitate a Greeno knee board. Yeah. And, you know, a knee board is just that for knee, being on your knees, not standing up on. And they, and they realized it had gone too short. And so they started adding the length back on in the early 70s. And I think when Jerry started Lightning Bolt in the early 70s, Is when boards really came into their own because by that stage everybody had gone to low rails. Mm -hmm. We'd gone from all those displacement halls to now we knew what planing halls were. Then the key was getting away from those straight bottoms and straight tails and and going tail rocker. And that's when you started seeing because you look at footage like with Jock, he was good, but he was still stiff at pipeline. And it wasn't until Jerry came along, and then following him, Rory and Jackie Dunn and those guys behind him, but they were able to get boards that held into that tube, and but still maneuvered because of the tail rocker. Mm-hmm. Because up to that stage, we didn't know. We were still putting longboard bottoms on our these short boards, yeah. and and the early '70s became, to me, a really exciting time. Do you
0: think that this could uh, help? Okay, make changes. I mean, you know, what you're just reciting now. Do you think there's another? Uh, evolutionary major change coming?
2: I, I believe surfing progresses like an egg. It rolls forward and progresses and then it loops back on itself and picks up some of the good things that it, it we've done and, and it keeps moving forward in an oval and so surfing is always progressing in this form. Mm-hmm. So you're going forward but then you always come back and pick up some of the good things that you remembered or, or worked on. Inspire new. Creation. And then uh, then you adapt yeah. those into the new. So yeah. it's not like a circle it's going around and, and back People say, "Oh, we're back to retro boards again." Well, we're on modern retro boards. We're taking some of the good things of retro boards and making them modern, mm-hmm. and that's what surfing is. It's always continually progressing. As I said earlier, when I look when I was young, I look at guys on those old wood plank boards. And I go, "Those things are kooks, you know, kook boxes." <laughs> and then longboards came along, and they were great. When foam came along, the first guys laughed at foam. They say they called it flexi flowers, but then everybody adapted to it.
0: But you know, it's coming to them, it's gone full circle. And last comment I have is you know, it, it appears that surfing will be in the 2020 Olympics. For sure. And it's not going to be in the ocean, it's going to be in man made pools. I think that, that's waves. probably a good idea. Yeah. And <laughs> so it's going to, you know, they're going to have the flexibility because they've engineered it so that the wave can be changed by. Yeah how it's developed, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's real food for thought about creating a, the ultimate perfect wave that's not gonna be like you see in the the summer search, you know, where it's just this perfect tube breaking like it did in South Africa. I think it's gonna be a composition of things that you'll have to go through to demonstrate your real skill in being adaptive to conditions and varying conditions. and, and So I think, I hope that we'll see this happen in the 2020 Olympics where you don't know what, you know, when you go out to a spot, you know where the set's gonna break. You basically know where in the reef and you, you know, having done this so many times, you know where to paddle to wait just in the right spot. I hope that they could change that all up and you don't, where you don't know what's gonna happen. But there's basically a takeoff area and the rest is all up to the draw. Sure,
2: well, I think Jerry and I have both been to Kelly's Wave Ranch, Mm -hmm. Surf Ranch, and one thing i loved about the fact that you can regulate the wave like you said and you can change it but what people don't realize is they oh it'll get boring because the wave is always the same but it's not because every not. surfer ad- adapts to it in a different form that's right and that's what makes it exciting to actually watch the surfers take the same wave and how they approach it so you say somebody like john john florence will be a tight little surfer where somebody like Jordy smith will be just powering it off the bottom and then some other kid like kinoa will will be you know flying off the top so everybody has their adaptation it's just like jerry i think back in the 70s set the tone for how to ride pipeline and there was many uh followers but everyone had their own and to this day it keeps changing so like i said it's that oval it goes forward picks up some of the good things of the past and keeps them moving it forward it's never full circle it's a full oval it keeps moving that that's oval a nice way moving. of uh, looking at change
3: Yeah. you know I always look back on the 70s fondly just because comparing the generations before and the generations to follow the guys before obviously you know they had no crowds they had the waves all to themselves but they had terrible surfboards Yeah. yeah. I mean at the time they were great but you know, when our generation came along and the short boards finally developed, obviously the short board was much better than the boards before, mm-hmm. and that allowed us to ride waves like the Pipeline more or less successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, the generation that followed us, they had even better boards, really beautifully shaped surfboards, but they had a lot of people to deal with. Yep. And so looking, you know, at the whole picture, um, I thought we had it the best just because we had boards that were pretty good and it still wasn't that crowded. I don't know if I'd be a surfer if I had to learn how to surf in the 80s or 90s or especially now, just because, you know, it's it's uh, it's kind of a scene yeah. to be a surfer. Um, hmm. But then surfing has that thing about it that you know you go out there and it's you know surfing's a real selfish endeavor but it's really private too and and you have that special moment you know maybe it's that first wave or whatever but it touches something deep within you that is really compelling you know it makes you want to do it again and again and it makes you want to get better at it and understand it and and, um I don't know what it is. It, it it makes you feel good. And so I don't know, in my next life, I hope I get the gift of surfing again.
2: So <laughs> <laughs> it's, secret, it's a secret it. thrill. And it's when people discover that. And unfortunately with the modern world, it's being discovered faster and faster. Yeah. As Jerry pointed out, in those the early shortboard days were really wonderful because it wasn't that crowded yet. We had much better equipment. That particularly allowed us to ride the North Shore. I'm not saying there's anything bad about the early 60s and riding fun Macaha on a tanker was really, really great. I mean, it had some terrific days, but that same board didn't work very good at sunset. And- right. Um, when we got to shorter boards and learned about designs that would work in the waves, I think the surfing improved dramatically. wasn't that crowded yet, as Jerry said, and so that made it really wonderful to be able to... We rode all the waves we could ride. And <laughs> think about that. And nowadays, guys are paying to go to a wave pool so they can get the waves that they need to ride. So that's the difference yeah. in, in the modern air versus... Uh,
0: well, one thing for sure as far as I'm concerned, guys aren't gonna stop surfing, no. <laughs> it's gonna continue because it's a, it's a, such a deeply personal connection you have. Well, Paul, you're
2: you know people. an incredible inspiration to us. I mean, yeah. like I said, you're half a generation older than us and you're still out there charging it. We're not yeah. riding as big a wave as we used to, but, no, but the, 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 the thrill matter. is still just as yeah, big. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah.
0: That's, if you're allowed to come in with a smile on your face, yeah. then you know it made a difference. You know? I want to thank you, Jerry and Randy, for sharing your thoughts and and your lives, too, with this. And the whole purpose of this is to enroll other people to share what surfing has meant to them and how it will affect everybody in a positive way so we can, you know, come in with a smile.
3: Well, well, I, I think this is really a good thing that you guys are doing. And I think for both of us, it, we'll definitely be back because this is something that... that um, the surfers of today, you know, i think are interested in they they want to know where their sport came from. Mm-hmm. they want to know, you know, how these surf spots were discovered and and pioneered and and you know, this is all real interesting stuff and if we don't do it, you know, it's all going to get lost so, yeah.
2: Just, But Paul, as the podcast is called, a pod aloha. It's a pleasure for us to help share that aloha, and that's one thing. Growing up in Hawaii, that I think we've learned that if you can spread that feeling and really give that gift of aloha to other people, then you've accomplished being a good surfer.
0: Yeah, and that's what life's all about. Truly, you know, if you can look back at where you are now and and at your life, you know, hope the smile comes to your face because. It's truly living.
3: And I think that's something that embodies what Duke Hanamoku was all about and was trying to share with all of us and all surfers that uh, this is something special we get to do and the aloha's a huge part of it. Absolutely.
0: Mahalo Duke and mahalo to you Jerry and Randy. Thank you. Aloha. Aloha. Aloha.